0: Hi there, Duke fans. Welcome to episode 492 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. And right about now, you're probably saying to yourself, wait a second, this isn't a DBR Bites? This is a full episode in the middle of the week? What the hell's going on here? Well, the answer is this. There was some, I don't know if the Duke program planned for it to be, you know, big news, but everybody in in the Duke world who's read this article thinks this is big news. We're going to be talking about the recent article by Dana O'Neill in The Athletic, where John Shire, in one line, perhaps changes the course of where the Duke program um, is heading. Before we get to that, it's time for introductions, because after 492 of these, there's no way you know who the hell is talking to you, right? <laughs> uh, I am Jason Evans. I'll be your host, your Sherpa, your guide to the wilderness on this episode of the podcast. I'm joined by Sam Klein and Donald Wine. Donald, you just got back from traveling, right? I did. And
1: and I was telling you before we logged on that we uh, there's there's a couple of ways to do this. I had a 5 a.m. flight, not like 5 a.m. boarding time, like 5 a.m. flight from Dallas this morning. And so normally I take a nap of a couple hours and go to and wake up and go to the airport. This time I decided I'm just going to power through. And, you know, I did some work and just kind of stayed up all night. Uh, Well, it worked to get on the plane. But it's not working right now because I am feeling a little tired. But I am the price, energized baby. by the fact that we are about to talk about uh, this article and really just, again, everything that kind of comes out of it. Because, like you said, one line has created a whole bunch of uh, back and forth debate,
0: good or otherwise, about uh, the state of recruiting with Duke basketball. Exactly. And Sam Klein is with us as well. Sam, feels like it's been a good 16 hours since I spoke to you. <laughs> I see you every day. Now, so,
2: <laughs> Donald, when you when you go on that 5 a.m. flight, because I've done the same thing. I assume it was a Southwest Airlines flight. They love that. It was not. Really? Oh, I find that it's like uh you can fly at 5 a.m. and it'll be two hundred dollars. And every other flight today is four hundred and fifty. And you have to do the mental math of I will save two hundred and fifty dollars. Is it worth ruining the rest of my day to like to spend two hundred and fifty dollars? And your mileage may vary. On that calculation, I have been on both sides of it.
0: So so I'm going to tell you guys, speaking of, and and I can't believe we're wasting time on this, but what the hell, speaking of wasting money, I just literally like six hours ago did something involving a plane flight that I've never done before. My wife and I are going in April, shortly after the national championship is all done, after we're done celebrating the fact that Duke wins the national title, because that's happening. Whoa. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, my wife and I are taking a, a trip to Israel. She's actually never been to Israel. I haven't been since my bar mitzvah. We are way overdue to visit the uh, the homeland, the land of milk and honey. And there is a direct flight from Atlanta to Tel Aviv on Delta, which we paid for with miles. And she was looking and the cost for us to upgrade to first class was $1,500 a person. And usually it's like five grand. I've never paid for first class before on a flight. I think that's an outrageous expense that just I can't you know have to be stupid wealthy to spend that kind of money when you could be flying for you know a a, a fifth of the price. Well, I paid to upgrade to first class. You're doing no, it. You, up, yep, no, you doing it. No you absolutely upgrade. Yeah.
1: That is that is standard that is standard That seems like yeah,
2: procedure. I was going to say especially if you if you've gotten the ticket for I mean, you know, everyone's got their their own mental calculation here, but that seems like a that seems like the right deal.
0: Yeah, exactly. We saw fifteen hundred bucks, and we were like, "Okay, we, we got to do this." So, so my trip to Israel is now costing three thousand dollars more than expected. But you know, hey, I'm flying first class, so I, but it be, means you, that
2: that extra day you spend flat. there, yeah, is is more productive. So, it's, oh it's, man.
0: it's lay flat seats. I'm gonna I'm gonna sleep the whole way, baby. Oh, mm-hmm. I
2: love that. I I have I've been there a few times, and uh, it's th- this is too long. We need to get into. Wait, I have one more <laughs> off topic thing related to the last off-topic thing that we talked about on the last show, which is that uh, we heard from a listener and uh, I'll protect his identity only because he told me that he he went through like a whole bunch of concerts that he went to in the 70s in the triangle. But the best part of the story uh, was that this guy was a, he was a student at Duke when uh, the Grateful Dead played at Cameron Indoor. I think it was like 1973 or 1974 and told us that he was, uh, and he wasn't a huge Grateful Dead fan, but he was an usher and was on LSD at the show, and <laughs> I just like I'm so glad we got it was so worth. That's a the different time, man. That's a whole. Topic, that's a different era. <laughs> to hear that there are listeners like that to this program gives me like a really, a really warm fuzzy feeling. So, uh, that's great.
0: In the so in the past two episodes now we have spoken about going to Grateful Dead, Rush, and Jethro Tull concerts. I think we are a really cool '70s rock band.
2: I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I mean, I like this. I, this is. I've been trying to to turn this podcast into a music podcast for years, so uh, I'm, I'm, I'm succeeding. Do you want to talk about John Shire?
0: Yes, I think it is time. I, I feel for all the p- people out there who are like, oh man, I've been dying for them to talk about this.
2: And oh, man, I had a transition for this. Sorry. Oh, do it, did do it. Let me know, hear. It. Did you know that my acapella group? Did a private show for the Shire family in two thousand nine, two thousand ten.
0: What? Wait, come yeah. on,
2: really? We were, um, we were contracted to play a uh, a special private show for John and his parents, and they gave us two hundred bucks uh, as thanks for it. And I think we we sang like five songs, and then we proceeded to spend all of that money that night on a party that we threw for ourselves and some of our <laughs> friends. So that's how you do it. <laughs> Uh, shout out! Shout out to the Shire family. Uh, they're uh, they're good tippers. I love it. Okay. Tell so anyway, you... now that we've now that we've talked about about music, we could talk about John Shire.
0: <laughs> nice segue, Sam. All right, I'm going to read the quote. This is what matters, ladies and gentlemen. This is uh, and it is in quotation marks. So Dana O'Neill must have had the uh, the tape recorder rolling when she was talking to John Shire. Here are the words that John Shire spoke in this article in the Athletic. He said. I feel really good about what we've done and what we're doing. But going forward to me, it's important that we have continuity from season to season. From a culture perspective, it's hard to do that in college basketball. But we feel we can do it in a really good way while still recruiting differently. I don't think that we'll recruit as many freshmen in a class going forward. This is John Shire telling all of us. A, he wants Duke to change and he wants the Duke culture to not be a one season culture for these guys. And he's saying that he is going, he's clearly saying, I'm recruiting fewer one and done players. I'm recruiting more players who I expect to be here two, three, four years. And as a result, I don't need to bring in five or six new guys every single season because I'm going to have more guys staying on the roster and more continuity in the program seismic seismic shift in the way duke handles things guys i don't even know where to start with all this i've already said a little bit i will freely admit i told you all earlier i have three pages of notes from that one quote it has generated three pages of notes by me donald i'll let you go first give me what you're seeing and thinking as a result of john shire indicating a change in the duke philosophy so First off, everyone, bear in mind that there are so many
1: layers to this onion, right? Like there's so many angles you could take this. This is the reason why we're kind of making this a full episode, because we could talk about this for three hours and not really, you know, touch every surface of of what this means. But let me start with this. I've always said and people are freely able to uh, disagree with me on this, but I tell you this all the time. No one is a one and done player until they actually leave. Right. Like. Of course, we have people who come in and people expect to be one and done. But there are a lot of things that can happen between the time a person steps foot on campus and the time that they
0: leave campus to go to the NBA or other parts unknown, right? No, wait, 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 wait. And uh, because we're going to – this is a conversation where I expect us to be jumping in to challenge each other. Donald, I can't think of a single guy who I would have said on day one – this guy is a lock, one and done. There's no question about it. He has lottery pick written all over him. He is absolutely going to be a one and done. I can't think of a single one of those that came back for a second year at Duke. N- name me one. I, I, no, here's the thing. Again, not
1: always. It's not always the case about oh they because they leave they're one and done, right? They're one and done the second they leave, but until then there is still that opportunity for them to come back. And also, it's on the flip side, right? Think of think of this year's example. Think of an example this year. Kyle Filipowski was on this podcast and told us that he was staying for three or four years, and now people are talking about him being a first-round pick and him possibly leaving. Right, so he's turned from a guy who isn't a one-and-done, recruited is not a one-and-done, to a potential one-and-done. On the flip side, yes, I know there's been a guys, you know, especially when we're talking about Duke, uh, that guys have have left after one year. But there are guys who we always talk about the unpacking process. They want guys to unpack their bags and live the Duke experience. And for a couple of guys, while they did not uh, eventually went to the you know NBA, I can think of two guys that I thought in two recent examples over the last decade that I thought unpacked their bags and were closer than people think to actually coming back. One of those was Kyrie Irving. And one of those was Zion Williamson because they love color. Dude, Because they love the Collier stories. So much. I know,
0: but they both left,
1: but at I, the same
2: time, I, go ahead, Sam, go ahead. Yeah. I, I was going to say that on Jason has, has one of the right points here, which is that the, we haven't had a expected one and done come to Duke and stay the second year. Right. It, 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 it at right. least turns into we're definitely leaving that being said, there have been a lot of guys that have become as donald says become one and dones once they were on campus absolutely and whether whether they had planned on that or like you know privately or not the challenge here for john shire is identifying the difference between those guys when they are 16 years old when they're 17 years old when their their games are changing like we we talk about these recruits when they were when they commit you know summer after their sophomore year, during their junior year, summer after their junior year. We talk about them like they're these static prospects. They're not. They're changing all the time. And they're not just growing, but all the guys around them are growing and and, and improving and changing their games and adapting and thinking about, all right, like this year I'm 6'5". This is the, the kind of role that I might be able to play in the NBA. Like I can't be a big man if I'm 6'5". I have to be an outside shooter. Oh, no, I just grew four more inches because I'm a 17-year-old boy. And now I'm sitting, you know, like if you're Mike Dunleavy, your whole life changes when you go from being a 6'3 recruit to being a 6'9 recruit. And that's, you know, that's obviously before the one and done era. And that's it's kind of a different point. We haven't had a, one of those guys exactly in recent years at Duke. But a lot changes from the time that they start talking to the program to the time when they commit. So the challenge here for John Shire and the, the like thing that I would throw back at him, if I was the one running this interview is how do you parse the difference between a guy at 16 who is definitely going to be a lottery pick and a guy who is going to have some kind of impact as a freshman won't be a star and is committed to sticking around like like John Shire probably thought he had one of those guys in Kyle Filipowski when he recruited him two years ago and now I don't know if Filipowski is going to leave after this season he might he might not Uh, He hasn't really been talking about it much, which is interesting, even though I just don't know that he's been asked. Well, no,
0: these these kids never talk about it in season. It's a it's a season conversation. It
2: has become less taboo, I think, to talk about it in season. But whether he stays or not, Shire probably thought, you know, Whitehead will leave. Lively will leave. Maybe Mitchell will leave. Proctor will leave. And Flip might stay because that's that's what he said. That might end up being like he might be being wrong about most of those assumptions. He recruited those two. yeah, it's it's impossible to to for Shire to predict that kind of thing. And I don't know. And now I'm now you got me guys uh, looking back at at other schools where they famously like, quote unquote, famously don't have as many top, top guys. I don't know that like Tom Izzo is good at predicting all of the uh, all the Draymond Greens that are out there, or all you know, whoever the whoever the guys that we're talking about.
1: But at the same time think about this right over the course and and I think there's been eras of college basketball we're in the one and done era right because the top 10 15 guys in 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 any recruiting class most of them are thinking that they want to be on campus for one year because that's what is required of them and then they're going to go to the league most recently recently you see like the over overseas, overseas elite and and the G league type of teams G league night those sort of things that gives them another option to play out the one year if they don't want to actually Go to class. Right. So we have that option for them now, but still guys are going to college because they say, hey, this is my best path to the NBA. I'm going to do it this way. 15 years ago, people weren't thinking that way because guys, when they were 17, 18 years old, if they were good enough and there wasn't a lot of them that made this leap. But if they were good enough, they could try to go to the NBA on their own and bypass college altogether. So they didn't have that mind frame. The guys who were coming to college weren't coming thinking they were coming for one year because they didn't have to. They were coming thinking they were going to college. And if things got good for them, then they could leave. But I ask you this, every single, and this is something where I I think the general debate kind of flows for Duke along these couple lines. Do we want to recruit the best players in the country or do we want to recruit three to four year guys? Because right now, those are two separate recruits. And most people will tell you, that they want Duke to recruit the best because we are a, part, a program that aspires to be the best every single year. We don't go for – we go for national championships every single year. That is our, you know, what we – what we our stature. That's where we're at. But to do that, you have to sometimes get the best players. And if you are getting the lesser players that you know are going to stay two or three years, are you sacrificing your attempts to be the very best you can be? I think that's the biggest – the biggest de- part of this debate is that people need to understand that those two things might be separate right now.
2: I, I I picked out a a random class here. Okay, in 2015, Villanova got commitments from the following guys: Jalen Brunson stuck around, won national championship. Dante Divincenzo stuck around, won. Na- did he? I don't remember if he won one or two. Yes, he won. Uh, he won two. They he won two. two okay, both those guys two. were both stars. At Villanova. Yep. You want to know who else Villanova recruited that year and gave offers to? Thomas Bryant, who went to IU and was like the 20th best prospect. I think he left after his freshman season. They recruited Donovan Mitchell, who went to Louisville and was a huge star, and and then went to the NBA. They recruited Isaiah Briscoe, who I think spent two years at Kentucky uh, because Kentucky had that weird sort of down period. He ended up in the NBA. So was, and I'm just picking, I, I, I cherry picked this a little bit, but like, but like people celebrate that um that Villanova was able to turn these guys into into great 3 4 year players is that the case or was Villanova just not able to close on players that decided to go to Kentucky and Louisville and, and Indiana and and there wasn't a duke guy in this in this class but but Villanova has gone like in the next year Villanova uh, recruited Trey Duval and he ended up going to duke and spending one year and obviously he you know his career didn't go the way that he wanted it to but but what like how does how does John Shire separate those two types of players?
0: All right. So, so I can answer this for you and, and I'll answer that for you and answer Donald's question at the same time. The answer is and, and I want to really I want us to bring this back rather than just like general recruiting philosophy. I want to bring us back, bring us back to Duke and I'll speak about this in terms of Duke. I don't think that John Shire is talking about abandoning recruiting one and done players. I don't get that impression at all. And in fact, if you look at the players that Duke has recruited in the class of 2023 and the class of 2024, who were after the guys we're talking to in the class of 2025, there are several of them who are absolutely, sure thing, like I said, no question about it, one and done talents. But what you do is, and I think the sweet spot is, can you mix in longer term players, guys who will be older, guys who will develop in your program, guys who will stick around for three and four years with guys who are one and done or guys who are two and done. By the way, don't ignore two and done is a really significant yeah, we thing. Yeah, we've like Matthew Hurt, those type of guys, Matthew Hurt, Mark Williams, those type of guys. Exactly. I mean, and think about how much Matthew Hurt and Mark Williams improved from their freshman, their sophomore year. That's one of the reasons that a lot of Duke fans, because there's sort of, there's a sniff in the air that Tyrese Proctor and Mark Mitchell are probably going to come back just because their draft stock isn't that great. And everyone's like, wow, think of what those guys are going to be as sophomores. Don't forget thing... Luke Kennard. Put, put Luke
2: Kennard in that group. Luke Kennard
0: as well, yeah. Mm-hmm. The best The best thing, you know the saying, the best thing about a freshman is they become a sophomore. Um, so you, you need to sprinkle in those elite talents, those guys who are going to end up being NBA all-stars, those guys who are one and done with guys who stay longer. And what's more, gentlemen, I'm going to tell you that even though John Shire only started talking about this now, I've kind of suspected that he was on this path for a little while because look at what Duke has coming in next year in the class of 2023. Mackenzie Mbako is absolutely a guy who everyone says is going to be a one and done top 10 recruit, top five recruit. He 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 is someone that everyone expects to come in, start from day one, be a huge impact player. A lot of people compare him to Jason Tatum and then move on to the NBA, but look at the rest of that class. Sean Stewart, who's a top 15 recruit, but he's a little undersized for the NBA. He's not a guy with big outside shooting touch, and NBA scouts are a little skeptical about, you know, how his game would translate to the next level. Caleb Foster, he is not the kind of elite run-jump-lightning-fast athlete that the NBA covets at the point guard. There's also some questions about his three-point shooting. Jared McCain, ridiculous shooter, incredible shooter, but not an elite athlete, and only 6'2". He would have to play point guard in the NBA at 6'2". Hasn't necessarily shown point guard kind of skills so far. TJ Power, another great shooter. But who does a guy like that guard at the next level? He, he you know, he probably projects as a small forward in the NBA. And he's a little bit, I, I think he's a little bit like Matthew Hurt. I'm not saying their games are exactly the same, but a guy who's going to be a great shooter for you, but you're going to have some questions about the defense and the athleticism and how those things translate. Well, so in the class of 2023, there's a pretty good chance that Mbako is the only one who's one and done. Go to the class of 2024. Duke's already brought in. They've already got a commitment from Devin Harris. He's just a top 50 recruit. This is not someone that you expect to even be thinking about going one and done. Now, Duke is still recruiting Dylan Harper in the class of 2024, the son of Ron Harper, who is a top five recruit, maybe number one in the class. Duke is hot on Dylan Harper. A lot of people think Duke's the front runner to get him. He would be a one and done. So what I'm telling you is John Shire is trying to get a mix. And most of the people say that mix is where you want to be. That's where teams look. Look, Gonzaga lately has been doing a lot of that, that mix of guys who are a little bit older with some young studs. I think that I, 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 like I agree with you there that the mix,
1: the balance needs to work out, right? And I think that's what a lot of fans would would strive for. I think I think you also I don't know if you were looking forward forward, but 2025, we're going after the boozer twins and we're going after Cooper Flag. Caden Boozer is a Caden Boozer, I think, uh or uh, is, is number one in the class and Cooper Flag is no two no, no. In the class.
0: Cameron Boozer is number one in the class. Cameron, excuse
1: me, Cameron is Cameron number one. Cameron
0: and Cooper Flag are number one and two. And in fact, there are a lot of people who think but the class of 23 and 24, both those classes are not considered quite as strong. Um, you know, relative and 25 to 25 is past one of the classes. strongest
1: we've seen in a long time. Yeah, they're <laughs>
0: saying 25 is ridiculous. And and there are a lot of people who will tell you that Cooper Flagg and Cameron Boozer are the best NBA prospects currently in high school, even though they are both only freshmen. So I think the other thing about this is
1: that there's a couple other elements that have been recently introduced that kind of affect this. One is NIL. And one is the transfer portal and really the transfer portal is, is one where most, a lot of team. And I think uh, Sam, you even had an article that we, we kind of discussed on the show uh, last week about the fact that the transfer portal has affected how recruiting is done with some of these guys going, Hey, I don't need to go after the top five guys because if they go to a place and they don't like it, they're going to hit the portal and I can get a seasoned sophomore who is a you know, top 10 recruiter or whatever, and I can get him in the transfer portal. I think Duke is going to be relying, not necessarily heavily on it, but they're going to be ready for it as soon as it really opens up in April. Because I think there's guys there that they can use to round out classes as opposed to last minute recruiting of guys who are entering as a freshman who we may not know. They can take They can take the flyer on a guy that they know is experienced at the college level as opposed to a freshman where they may have to, again, Jason, work with them over a couple of years to get what they need. I I, I think the Transportal is playing a lot into this as well. But again, I still think they're going, they're still going after some of the best guys in the country. And I think Duke fans need to understand that if you want a bunch of four-year guys, right now that means you're looking for guys that aren't going to go to the draft. And everyone who is really good considers themselves someone that's good enough to go to the NBA. I
2: think one of the challenges here is that predicting jason like you were talking about like finding those guys that are not quite elite nba prospects but are like sort of just below that point the the needle that you have to thread if you're john shire or any of the any of these coaches that are that can pull in multiple top 20 recruits is talking to them about that development program and getting them to buy into amen this is this is the path because if you're a top 15 guy i i don't care what the what the scouts are saying about you. If you if you are a top 15 guy, you're t- you're looking in the mirror and saying, "Oh, all I got to do is climb a couple spots and I'm going to be a top 10 NBA draft pick." Like you do not think you are that far. If even if you're a top 25 guy, you are not that far away from being a top 10 NBA draft pick because there are examples of it. And so the trying to get the the narrative exactly right from Shire or whoever whoever the coaches are that he's going against for these players is such a fine line and then the other thing that you have to consider is that the the roster spot you know if if you're talking about roster spots that are not taken up by one and done guys there's the returning sophomores and the returning juniors and then there's also the transfer portal guys the Ryan Youngs the the Jacob Grandisons the the Theo Johns but those guys you 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 kind of don't know which ones are going to be available and interested in stuff until the season already starts. And by the time you get a a pulse on which guys are coming through the transfer portal that year, the the senior class in high school has at least, you know, they haven't necessarily all committed yet, but they are on the path to committing. So timing up all of these things is also, is also a huge challenge. You've already heard about so many of the like older generation of coaches, guys like Roy Williams and Mike shashevsky saying, you know what, this is kind of enough. I don't want to deal with all this, all this complication. I think you will hear about more coaches leaving the profession because they're like, it was hard enough to keep track of all these high school players that we needed to go see. And there were these tournaments. Now it's like, I got to keep track of all the high school players. I got to keep track of all the transfer portal guys and have opinions about where I would stack all of them in my roster. Because as much as any coach says, Oh, you come in here, you're you're guaranteed nothing. John Shire's already, he's thinking about the, he's thinking about the minutes distribution in advance the same way that the DBR forum is. And, and he's thinking about where are we going to plug in all these guys and how do they, how do they fit together? Because we talk about roster construction all the time. We talk about, okay, where's the shooting coming from? Where's the perimeter defense coming from? Shire's trying to do the same thing. He's trying to build the same roster. So I, I believe him when he says, this is what he's trying to do. It is very hard. And, I'm not, maybe, maybe Mark Few at at Gonzaga has, has mastered this, but even that is, is sort of hard to believe that you can get the formula exactly right for cooking up a team that has experience in the program. Because by the way, the other thing about the transfer portal, as good as Ryan Young has been, he has, he's only been at Duke for eight months or, or whatever it is. There are things about the program that he is learning. Oh, uh, look, when, when Shire are.
0: talks about continuity, he's not talking about bringing in fifth year. That's not yeah. right. Guys. The transfer portal doesn't count for that. It counts
2: for experience. It's great that Ryan Young and Jacob Grandison are there to kind of kick butt a little bit in practice. And I'm sure that the young guys are like, Oof, these dudes, these dudes know how to how to get every ounce out of their ability, you know, during practice and and in, you know, early morning workouts and stuff. But man.
1: But remember, getting... Ryan Young has an additional year, so he's not a traditional graduate sure. transfer. But,
2: but but their continuity does not work in the same way that a that a freshman is where he brings no baggage from another program, no sort of outside thoughts about like, oh, well, this is how, you know, Grandison is pro- oh, this is how we did things in Illinois, blah, blah, blah.
0: Right. The, the reality is the continuity does not work for Duke in this season. And and Shire's primary concern, I think, every year is what's happening in this season. Um Look, the one time the one
2: time Duke almost succeeded in that was in recruiting Rodney Hood, who was a freshman at Mississippi State, yeah. sat out a year, mm-hmm. uh, came to Duke and then had such a good year that he left after that one season. So he only was on the court for Duke for the one year. I don't know that that's what Mike Shashevsky thought was going to happen when he recruited Rodney Hood out of the transfer or what we whatever we call the transfer portal. He just as a transfer from Mississippi State, he might have thought oh, I'll get this kid for for three years and then he's going to be a real star for us. Then he blew up and went to the NBA. So it's very hard to, to predict how these things go because John Shire could do a very good job with these transfers or with these or with these freshmen and end up sending them to the league before he had planned on it.
1: Right. So there's a couple of things too, and this is not something that I think Duke does, but other, other programs do do this, is they recruit one and dones by recruiting around them, right? Like to create a one and done vacuum by recruiting guys the next year, like, you know, like Calipari basically going to see your night saying, Hey, all five of these freshmen, it's their last game. Everyone, you know, give them a round of applause. Thank him for coming to Kentucky because he's already recruited behind them. I don't think that's something that Duke does, but there is, has been a couple instances lately of guys that may have possibly decided to come back, but then read the writing on the wall with regards to the roster situation because they realize, Oh, we got people coming in and my spot, you know, I may not be getting the same amount of minutes that I'm doing, this year right dj stewart you know he could have come back but he ended up not he ended up deciding hey if i come back i'm really not going to thrive in this offense and it wasn't he was right before the transfer portal kind of really blew up so he decided to go pro and it, it didn't work out as well for him as it as, as it should
0: have but i also think that when it comes Yo, to by the way guys, I'm, donald I, I think your timing is off on that i think dj stewart dj stewart decided to leave and that's one of the reasons that duke ended up getting trevor keels i don't think duke got trevor keels and then dj stewart decided to leave i think that those oh yeah okay. think- yeah Jason's forgive me right you're, right. you're right yeah. same
1: thing with with uh, trevor keels leaving and then that's how we ended up with tyrese proctor reclassifying and, and going through. but yeah so so thank you for that clarification but i do think again it doesn't really necessarily affect duke in that way or it hasn't before but it has affected other colleges and when we look at this yes I think the main thing that people need to realize is if we don't want to go after one and done's, that's fine. But let's not talk, let's not talk about it like these other programs aren't recruiting too. Zion Williamson didn't have Duke in like South Carolina State and, you know, Boise State on his radar. Everyone was going after these one and done's. It just so happens that we got to, we, we ended up with them. So if we're going to be going again, if we're going to be going after the best, and yes, there's going to need to be a balance, but if we're going to go after the best, we're going to have to go after the best
0: and that may involve some of these guys leaving after one year. So, so gentlemen, I'm about to give you a bunch of numbers in just a second, because I think one of the key factors in all of this is it's one thing to say, Oh, I, I'm going to try and find guys who are going to stick around longer, but it's another thing to actually succeed at that. And I want to take you back. We mentioned it a little bit to the class of 2020 that Duke brought in. And I remember us on this podcast being very excited about the class of 2020 it was a very deep class of guys. And we thought some of these guys are going to be around for a while. That was, that was absolutely the book on it. Jalen Johnson was going to be one and done. We knew that there's no question about it. Jalen Johnson was such an elite recruit with the kind of skills the NBA wants. He was going to be one and done, but we were like, Hey, and he ended up rest? being
2: like a uh, half and done.
0: Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. He, he left a, he left a medium rare. <laughs> I like my meat medium rare. Um, But the rest of the class, um, Jeremy Roach and D.J. Stewart and Mark Williams, these were not top 10 recruits. These guys were all like in the 20s or so, the kind of level where you think, oh, you know, that's the kind of guy who may stick around for a little while. And and Roach has stuck around and we got two years out of Mark Williams. But D.J. Stewart gone after one year. But then remember, we also had Jamin Brakefield and Henry Coleman. And these guys were absolutely not one and done players. These were both like top. Forty, top 50 kind of recruits. Heck, Henry Coleman was like a top 60 recruit. And you would think, God, we were so excited about having this kid for multiple years. Boom. DJ leaves early. Mark Williams blows up Is only at Duke for two years. Coleman and Brakefield both take the portal and they're gone. Suddenly, Duke was forced to be really young again. You can only get old if your players stick around.
1: And people transferring out of Duke is not a new thing either. We've always right. had, you no, know, it may not be two or three guys, but we've had some guys transfer in December uh, back in the day, where guys would leave after and uh, during the winter break and say, "Hey, I want to take my chances somewhere else," and they would transfer and start their sit their year of sitting out early so that they could be available for that team next Christmas.
0: Yeah, Oh, well, I, I was just, I was in my head. I was doing like Michael Thompson. I was bringing up some of the names of the of the uh, December transfers. But wait, so I I said, I have some numbers on this because the way that you keep those guys, the way you keep those guys from going in the portal and the such is you got to play them a little bit. Look, we don't know if Jaden Shute is going to stick around, but I guarantee you the fact that he started to get some minutes, that he started to get some time, uh, you know, a few weeks ago, has helped in the effort to get Jaden Shoot to be more than a guy who comes to Duke for one year and then portals out. So we're talking here about bench minutes, gentlemen. I, I did a deep dive on this. I went back through every year of data that Ken Pomeroy has about how much Duke plays their bench. The current Duke team, the first John Shire team, is giving 33% of its minutes to bench players. I want you to guess. How many times since 2007, in the past 17 years, Duke has given 33% of its minutes to bench players? Zero. I think the answer is zero. Donald, you say one? Donald says one, Mm -hmm. Sam says zero. The answer is one. It was in 2020, Duke gave 35.5%, 35.6% of its minutes to bench players. We had 10 guys that year. Average 12 plus minutes. We talked about this a week,
1: like a week ago on the show. We were talking about how much we use our bench relative to previous years. So that's why I knew it
0: was one. Yeah. So in 2020, like I said, we used our bench. But if you go back, I mean, like, so by the way, by Duke giving 32.6, 33% of our minutes to bench players this year, we're 139th in the country. We're a little above average um, for all the teams in college basketball. If you go back over the years, Almost every year, Duke is ranked in the 300s in terms of bench minutes. We're talking like we're one of the like bottom 50 teams in the country in terms of how much we use our bench. 2018, we're 341st. 2016, 346th. It goes on and on and on. 2010, and the 2016, 300... 2016
2: team wasn't even that good. Like they were like a four seed.
0: Yeah, exactly. 346th in bench minutes and I and I I looked at this on and on and on the only other year where Duke is even in the top 200 in bench minutes was 2009. I don't remember very much about the 2009 team Sam you were, were you there that you were yes you were
2: I I remember Henderson. a lot about the 2019 that 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 was Gerald mm-hmm. Henderson's team yes and yeah uh, mm-hmm. Henderson was Henderson was awesome on that team Kyle Singler was very good on that team and everybody else was shaky like that yeah. was like Greg Paulus's senior year where he start he was a starter and then he then he was Right. And, uh and John Shire was was kind of in and out of the rotation but was mostly on the bench but he still played a lot and Lance Thomas wasn't good yet and Ryan Zubek wasn't good. that was such a weird team uh they, they I think they made it they made it to the sweet 16 right and then
1: they did they lost to Villanova that year
2: that's right uh oh they lost to Villanova with Taylor King that mm-hmm. was the that was the uh, t- Taylor King was 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 on the bench for Villanova the year after he transferred away from Duke. Oh, I could spend so much time talking about that.
0: <laughs> the The bottom line is Duke. I think the way that John Shire, John Shire is one thing to talk about this, and I think talking about it is significant. I think it sends a signal when John Shire talks about the fact that he wants to recruit fewer freshmen, and when he essentially sends a signal to Duke fans to the media, to players that Duke is recruiting, to current players on the team. I mean, John Shire knows that what he says to Dana O'Neill will be read by a lot of different audiences. And he knows that, that this me- he's giving a message to all of them. So I, I think speaking it out loud matters in this case. But then the other part of it is, as I said, giving minutes to guys so they feel like they have a future in the program and so they stick around because I'm going to tell you something. If Tyrese Proctor, Kyle Filipowski and Mark Mitchell all go to the draft and Jaden shoot transfers, then Duke will be forced to recruit a whole bunch of new freshmen and bring in a whole bunch of transfer portal guys next year. It doesn't work. John Shire's philosophy that he's told us about will not work unless the kids decide to stay.
2: I want to go back to the 2019 team real quick because I just pulled up their Ken Pompey. <laughs> <laughs> So Gerald Henderson left after that year because he was amazing and it was it was his junior year and he left for the NBA. Duke had Elliott Williams coming off the bench, and then he was getting progressively more minutes throughout the season, and then somewhat mysteriously transferred to Memphis the next year, which forced Coach K to, to make a what was then a very drastic move in convincing Andre Dawkins to graduate early so that he could play spot minutes and reclassify for the yeah. championship team in 2010, a team that uh, had guys coming off the bench, but by the end of the season was basically just the five
0: starters. <laughs> All right, gentlemen, do we have much more that we want to say about this this bombshell? Because I'll say it. I think it's a bombshell. This, uh, I, I, I,
1: think, yeah. I think, Jason, you summed it up, right? The saying goes, first you talk the talk, then you walk the walk, right? We've heard the talk. We've heard him say, this is what the plan is. But, you know, Mike Tyson once said, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. What happens if some of these guys do leave? What happens if some of these guys transfer? What happens if everybody stays? What happens? You know, what I'm saying, like, what happens if everyone decides to stay and we get five new guys in and we have like 20 guys on the roster? What happens then? Every plan can be shifted, but it is nice that they're talking about it. But it's we still have to watch it actually be executed, just like every other offense that we've run in every in every game that we've seen this year. Sometimes that execution doesn't quite work out the way it will.
2: Donald, we might be seeing that this offseason when Mark Mitchell and Tyrese Proctor make decisions about whether they are going to leave for the NBA. Yeah. And, and because I have personally
0: and Jaden shoot. And Jaden shoot. And I'm Although I don't know that uh Philipowski to me is is a it's one that you can't lament if, if it happens. I think that if if we lose shoot or Mitchell or Proctor, then you'll then you that's that's where you'll hear all the angst from Duke fans about god you know why can't we keep guys around and why is it always new 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 players all the time
2: but yeah this is not but this is not the version of the plan that John Shire envisioned at all when he recruited these guys to campus because i am sure he thought that both Mitchell and Proctor were going to play well enough to leave after this season because they, they had they had those kinds of profiles. Proctor had already played professionally, Mitchell was a top 10 recruit, like these are the kinds of guys that that expect to only be in college for one year. So, I'm sure we'll pick this topic back up in April when the season is over and and people are are hounding them about what they're going to do.
0: Yep, absolutely. And it's worth noting by the way. And I want to stress this again because I think I want people to take John uh, John Shire's quote and this conversation the wrong way. Duke Duke is still in the business of bringing in absolutely elite players. Um, I, I think that John Shire absolutely recognizes that that Jason Tatum and Kyrie Irving and Zion Williamson and so on and so on in the NBA that the brotherhood brand is great because Duke ha- and Paulo Bancaro, uh, you know. Another Dang, one. we really we really let Kyrie Irving off the hook, didn't we? <laughs> we?
2: Man, they 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 erased him from Duke social media for about two weeks, and then uh, and then he was back. That is a that is a tough look yeah. for the boy. Anyway, but oh, but, well.
0: but the bottom line is, like I said, I mean, Duke is still after this kind of player. Um, uh, the the you know, fact that they're recruiting Harper in twenty four and Flag and Boozer in twenty five tells you that they're still going after this kind of player. It's it's the other players in the class that I think John Shire wants to get a little more out of. All right. We're going to take a quick break. My God, do we have more to discuss? Yes, we do. Another Jason, article from the Jason, Athletic.
2: Duke got waxed by Villanova in that Sweet Sixteen in two thousand nine. Oh my God!
0: That yes, I bad. remember that. Right,
2: that's a terrible memory.
0: All right, we will wipe that memory from your from your mind as we take a commercial break. The Neuralizer. <laughs> we'll be back in just one moment. Stare into the light. We're back from the break, and there is more from The Athletic that we want to talk about. Brendan Marks, friend of the podcast, a great guy, and Brendan got to sit down and chat with none other than Coach K. Sam, I know you love this article and think there's a lot that we need to chat about it. Um, uh, cue it up for everybody. Tell them what Brendan had to say about his sit-down conversation with Coach K.
2: Well, th- there was a lot about sort of what is Mike Shashevsky doing now that he isn't spending time game planning and and working Duke basketball games. And this is one of the things that I've been most fascinated by. I'm sure I've talked about it on the show, and I've certainly talked about it off the show, about one of my concerns about the, the John Shire era is that Coach K still has an office at the Schwartz Butters building. He still occupies the top floor. He's still on campus and walking around and casting a shadow over everything, even though he's not technically the head coach anymore. And I've been nervous this whole time about sort of the, the impact that he is having on the program, even behind the scenes. The version of coach K that we're getting from this article is that, yeah, he's around, but he's, he's, not really involved he's he's watching all the games in fact it looks like you could have we could have ponied up a lot of money to uh to sit with coach k and watch some of these games with him which man there's a part of me that wishes i had just done that because uh because it sounds so interesting and you get to hear full-throated cursing coach k uh, maybe maybe i
0: should have done that rather than flying first class to israel what do you (laughs) you would have had
2: to you would have had to give up a few first class tickets to do it yeah yeah but but i am I am pleasantly surprised at how much Coach K has been able to unwind. And we talked a couple of weeks ago when he or I guess it was like just over a week ago when he was at the Notre Dame game, how stoic he looked on the sideline. And I I was sort of worried he was going to be like getting out of his seat and yelling at everybody and and being exactly the, the guy that that, you know, he is on the sidelines. But it's clear that 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 vantage point sort of confused him a bit. And he was like, oh, I guess I don't. I, I don't have any control in here anymore. This isn't my building anymore. So I, I I'm I, so far. I am pleasantly surprised at how much it seems, at least publicly and, and even behind the scenes via this article. It seems like he's been able to detach a little bit. He still talks to John Shire almost every day, but it's not. Hey, why wasn't why? wasn't yeah, they're, not the the- they're not talking strategy. They're not talking
0: strategy. Yeah.
2: And 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 it seems like he's set the right boundaries, which frankly, like I was worried about Coach K uh, famously great at many things, famously not great at setting boundaries for anyone around him. Like there there were there was all those stories last year about, you know, Coach K forcing the coaching staff to, like, stay up all night watching film after games and making the team come in early to to have workouts and stuff, just like total psycho stuff. And it
1: does not seem like he is doing that in retirement. I think. First of all, right, like when you've done something for 60 years almost, right? Like he's been coaching since since he was a graduate assistant at Army and all damn near 60 years. When you do that, it's very hard to sit there and wake up one day and realize you don't have to do anything, right? So I, I, I'm, one of, I'm actually kind of proud of him for, again, how well he's doing in retirement. He's not sitting there kind of running out of practice and feeling like he – needs to do something with his hands, but he's getting involved in a lot of different things. I mean, they they mentioned that uh, because Michael Savarino, his grandson transferred up to NYU. He's gone up to New York for a couple of games uh, and kind of sat and watched the games there and kind of told people like, hey, I'm here to watch my grandson. I'm not here to take pictures or do autographs or be on anyone's show or anything like that. I'm just here to watch my grandson play just like everybody else here. Like, that's really cool. The fact that, I mean, he was just on Good Morning America earlier this week. Um doing stuff for be the match, which is a a, a thing to help people register uh for cancer uh, I, it's not necessarily cancer, but it's for, it's, um, a, it, it's bone marrow organ- donations bone yeah. marrow donation thank you um and he was doing that he's obviously he's been still heavily involved in the V foundation uh, and doing speeches there and trying to raise a lot of money there I think the, Sam you mentioned the the uh the nights that he's had in his office watching the games with fans uh those were all you know generating money for Emily K Center like he's doing a lot of things and I, I think for him all of that is keeping him just as busy and he can throw his because it's not like he's doing he doesn't do anything half right he goes all the way and everything he's putting all of his effort into his new job of being an ambassador for Duke and, and raising money for all these uh, different you know great initiatives that he's a part of and he's throwing you know full weight into being a granddad and talking with uh, you know talk with john shire about life he mentioned that he even talks to Jalen blakes and jeremy roach from time to time about life not about basketball just hey these are the only two kids that are left on this team that i coached like i'm going to have a relationship with them but it's going to be as a catch up like how are you doing type of thing so i i think this great and i think you know hopefully that helps people understand that hey He's not going to come in and, you know, be a guy that's going to be running practices anytime soon, but he still cares about people. And that's been the big thing that's kept him around for all this time. And he's doing that
0: full throat in his new retirement. Yeah. The, the, the takeaway that I had from the article is that coach K has retired, but he has not quit. He has not stopped. He's not running a basketball program anymore. He doesn't want to run a basketball program anymore. And he thinks he put the right guy in charge of the basketball program. And so he's staying out of his hair, but he hasn't stopped. He's still doing a lot of the things that make him happy and that can benefit the world because he, you know, he, he got into this business because he wanted to shape young men's lives and he still wants to do that. And he is still doing that. And it's a, it's a really nice article to, to get that understanding. And I agree, Sam, with what you said, which is that. He's not meddling in the Duke program. Um, I, you know, I don't know that you could call it meddling. I mean, he built the Duke program. So uh, to some extent, if he wanted to, it would almost be his right. But he understands that he handed it over to someone else and it's not his program anymore. And and I I think that's the right thing to do, even though I would not shed a tear if for some reason he was still coaching us this year.
2: <laughs> I, I mean, I there is something to be said for if he doesn't have the the fire, which is what he talked about. He was like, all right, I'm done. Like, yeah, yeah. I, I know how much I've got left in the tank and, and then, and then I'm out of here, even though he's not totally out of there, he's still, still on campus and still, still doing his thing. But uh, yeah, I, I, I just, to, just to reiterate, I, one of the things I was most nervous about with, uh with the coach K retirement and him still being around was the impact he might still be having day to day. And I'm glad that the separation has occurred here. the, it, it feels like the one thing about the John Shire era that we haven't seen yet is sort of the 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 grace under pressure during the postseason right this is what we're looking forward to over the next month and regardless I think of how Duke performs in the ACC tournament and the NCAA tournament I'm going to be focused on how is John Shire reacting to all of this and what are the what's everybody saying before the games and after the games because that feels to me like the one kind of unanswered question about does John Shire have what it takes to continue being a successful coach at Duke for many years to come?
0: Well, I'll say anyone who thinks that you should judge John Shire's long-term prospects based on this season is, is a fool and not, not about the, not about the outcome
2: of the, of the season, but about the way that he, uh, the way that he handles it. You know, it, it it's more watching the process than it is watching the results.
0: Okay, I can buy that. Donald, I know you had something you wanted to mention before we go.
1: Yeah, uh, I, I I know we didn't cover this uh, in the recap of Louisville, but I thought it was really cool that Duke honored uh, Dr. CB Claiborne uh, at the game on Monday night. He, uh, CB Claiborne, for people who don't know him, uh, is a professor, but also was the first black uh, basketball player at Duke. He was uh, he was there under Bucky Waters, who is a regular attender, uh, attendee at, at games at Cameron nowadays, but... Um, I thought it was really cool that they honor him. The players had warm up jerseys, their warm up shirts, I should say, uh, had uh, Claiborne's number twenty three on the back. And it's very rare that we see Duke uh, stop to honor some of the guys that aren't hanging in the rafters, right? Like individually, and I think singling him out and pointing him out was great because one, he w- he had a great career at Duke, but also at a time where there were only seven other black player or black students on campus, he had to go through a lot, and he talked about some of those stories of what he had to endure just to be a basketball player at Duke university in, I thought it was, you know, I want you to just uh to hear his story. Again, I'm glad that they were able to share that. I'm glad they were able to honor him uh, on campus. And uh, I, honestly, like I'm glad that he's still around to kind of share these stories uh, with the current Duke players about, Hey, you know, what the privileges of being a Duke player and also how, you know, what he had to endure to even afford that privilege. And, to not take it for granted. So uh, I hopefully it, hopefully it inspires the guys the rest of the season, but I thought that was great that they honored him. Two
2: things that stuck out to me from the inner, the sideline interview that he did or the, the off the court interview that he did during the game. One, he, (laughs) he dropped the reference to the brotherhood, which uh, was like, Man, I don't know how, how, how much you've been prepped for that, but that was like masterful uh, (laughs) execution of the brand on television. The other thing that stuck out to me was he mentioned that the year that he started at Duke, there were seven black students on campus. And, and as jarring, like even, even today, I don't know what the exact numbers are, but it's gotta be only like 10 or 20% of the Duke student population that is black. Meanwhile, you know, most of the basketball team is black and most of the football team is black. And, and there, you know, you can still sort of feel that level of segregation on campus, even if it's not as over. But there only being seven students who were black on campus speaks so much to how much more, like, stark, I guess it was, that Claiborne was was on the basketball team and was, you know, I, I don't know that the basketball team was as visible in the 60s as it is today on campus at Duke, but that that really stood out for him and that there really was not the kind of community that I think there is today for not just black students at Duke, but but students from all over the world.
0: I love that sentiment, Sam. You're you're absolutely right. Uh, and with that, we're going to wrap it up on this episode of the DBR podcast. Folks, if you've got thoughts and comments on all the different things we talked about today, feel free to send us an email, dbrpodcast at gmail.com. That is the email address. We love to get those emails from all of you. We'll be back after the Virginia Tech game, a game that I will be attending, and uh, we'll have a full recap of the, uh, the that important contest for the Blue Devils. Until then, I'm Jason, he's Donald, he's Sam, and this is the Duke Band. Play us out and take us home.
2: Dave McClure's Usage went down every year that he was at Duke until that he graduated after the 2009 season. His usage went down every year that he was a Blue Devil. Was it his senior That's
1: year it, that he had the, uh, the, the, uh, last second buzzer beater? No, that was in so. like the 2000, 2007.
2: 2007. No, oh, no, 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 it wasn't because I wasn't there. I think that was in, it was in 2007, I think, again. No, actually, that might have been his freshman year. No, um, no, no. no, it
1: wasn't 2006. 2006 was the, um,
2: no, two thousand five.
1: Two thousand five. was um was Dockery, and then and then it was he Dockery had that. over Virginia Tech.
2: Oh yeah, it was the home game against against Clemson in in uh, two thousand seven. Right, where McClure
0: just runs down the middle of the lane and yeah.
2: Yep. Yeah. Um, and then he worked. For, I think he's a. I think he's a scout. He is. He's uh. He's in the NBA. We uh. Did I tell you guys about? the time that we were recording the podcast this was years ago and uh i was i don't remember what airport i was in but i was in an airport recording the show and dave mcclure walked by me while we were recording <laughs> what yeah
0: <laughs> and you didn't grab, and I was like, like you didn't grab him
2: and i was no we were like we were in the middle of the conversation it like it would have been super weird and i was like really focused but he walked by and i was like it's dave mcclure <laughs> He played basketball at Duke. You're you're Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. You played basketball for the Los Angeles Lakers. No, son, I'm Roger Murdoch. I'm the (laughs) (laughs) co-pilot. That's the conversation I was about to have with Dave McClure.